You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. And welcome to another edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. Today's guest is David Brown. David is the voice of the Business Wars podcast, and he's had a very successful career in the broadcasting industry beyond that. Like me, David grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, but unlike me, he has a lot of education in his background, a lot of degrees, four to be exact, including a master's, a law degree, and a PhD. He's also a motorhead, a music connoisseur, and a big fan of Tocqueville. Here's my sit down with the great storyteller, David Brown. David, you have been a part of so many endeavors, so many programs. Marketplace was what, 15 years ago? Is that is that? Yeah, right? I guess that's right. Okay. Yeah, I guess that's right. 15 years ago. Yeah, and, and see, I know of that, but I'm embarrassed to say that I first heard of you with your podcast that you do right now, Business Wars. Cool. I, I Seriously, that's I, great. I feel like I'm the last one... To the David Brown party. <laughs> no, come on. No, no, no. But And I do want to no. thank uh, a guy who works here at The Blaze, actually works with our charity, Mercury One. Seth Johnson turned me on to your podcast. I'm telling you, I can't stop listening to it. And, oh, well, that's and, really And funny. I want to make sure that the audience knows that if you want little nuggets of history packaged so perfectly into a six- and seven-part series, and we're talking about like NFL versus USFL, uh, Coke versus Pepsi. You have a great one with uh, Southwest versus United. Just lots of great things that yeah. I've had my kids, we homeschool our kids, and mm-hmm. this is now part of their curriculum to listen to your podcast, Business Wars. Oh, that's so cool. Oh my gosh. I'll have to share that with the home office because that, that means that means a lot. And it's been an education for me too. I mean, you know, I've, I've been doing business journalism for a while, but uh, I feel like one of the things, I mean, is it, can you have a better job than one <laughs> where you're constantly, wor- you know, learning? I mean, and, and in a yeah. way, Business Wars has been a wonderful outlet for me, too. But I'm, I'm so happy to hear that, uh, uh, that your kids listen. That's, that's really cool. You're such a great storyteller. Well, first of all, you have the greatest voice. Let's be honest. It is, oh, that's it, you have an extensive background that we will cover in detail here. But nowhere have I seen in your past, any kind of theater or any kind of acting, but yet you pull off these characters and these stories so wonderfully. You bring these stories alive. <laughs> Do you have any kind of background in theater no. or performance? Well, not really. I did some stuff in high school, but that mm-hmm. doesn't really count. But but I have to say, uh, that was one of the most challenging things when I got this opportunity they said, can you do that sort of voice acting? And I'm no <laughs> Mel Blanc or anything. I've never, I've never done anything like that. Right. And, and so I didn't really know much of what to expect. And it's been sort of hit and miss. And, and I'm, you know, and we, and one other thing that we should say when we do those sort of recreations, we're kind of careful to note at the end of each episode, you know, these are dramatizations. Right. Quite often, we don't know exactly what was said at the time, but it's based on our best research and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But having said that, it's a challenge to try to sort of get in the head of each person or or uh, but it's also fun i mean because you're trying to imagine what that person is like or maybe remember seeing them on television at one time or another you know uh we were just working on a special series one for the adults only um playboy versus penthouse <laughs> oh, and no. it was uh, and so we got guccione and and hugh hefner 
And, you know, each of them are very distinctive personalities. <laughs> and something that I found this kind of helpful is to kind of imagine them. You sort of picture them in your head and you try to get into that. But we're not really trying to imitate, you know, the, the, the voice. Right. It's more important that for the listener, and we do this in stereo too, we'll like offset one voice to the left and another to the right mm-hmm. just to sort of give you some separation. And honestly, there's it's so hard for me hmm. to get out of my Southern accent. Mm-hmm. It is so hard for me. When I started out in journalism, I was working in Atlanta and then I got a gig up in Boston. Oh boy. And while I was there, yeah, exactly. I kept saying White House, but I would say White House. And they said, look, let's work on this, shall we? Uh, white. <laughs> like, and I, I, had to, I had to think to myself, okay, W-H-E-Y-E, White House. It really, so, you know, and then I went to London and I, I really had to get over my Southern accent there. Yeah. But, but, you know, it's, but it's, it's been a wonderful journey and uh, the acting part of it is just part of, part of the learning process too. And I'm, I hope I get a little bit better at that, but you're nice to, nice to share the compliment. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And I know exactly what it's like to be a Southern boy. Uh, I grew up in Atlanta <laughs> as well, and I went to school at the University of Nebraska and I yeah. have told the story of the weatherman in the TV newsroom that I interned in during college. That when I looked out the window, this guy was from Chicago, by the way, originally. And I remember mm-hmm. looking out the window one summer day saying, uh, hey, Dean, is it fixing to rain? And of course, Dean uh, Waisaki decided to make a big issue about it and stopped all, all the happenings in the newsroom <laughs> to point out that I asked a question, uh, fixing Fixing to rain? Fixin what does that to, mean, Southern boy? <laughs> Fixing to so, rain. Anyhow, yeah, so I've been there. I totally understand. So tell me, how did Business Wars, how did that start? How did that become your latest outlet for creativity? Well, I, I have to begin by saying that Business Wars is a real team project. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the words that I uh, track, that, that I uh, perform or read, those are written by a terrific uh, team of writers. And they're contracted by Wondery, which is the parent company for Business Wars and many other podcasts. And so some of these individuals who've written these stories really did the re- they, they wrote the book literally on some of these uh, clashes of business titans. So uh, then you have a, a, a series of editors. Karen Lowe is, is one of them, uh, Jenny Lauer-Beckman, Emily Frost. They go through the scripts and try to sort of fine-tune the copy for the ear because writing for the ear is different than writing for the eye, as I'm sure you know. And so we have to, uh, and then we go through it, and quite often once we're done, we're back making tweaks, you know, because we've discovered something that sort of changes something in the script or maybe something that they wrote didn't quite work for the ear the way that we all thought it did. So we're constantly tweaking, but it really is a team, a team effort. And I got into it because I had been at Marketplace, and one of the producers at Wondery, which is based in Los Angeles as Marketplace is, uh, knew that I had a real interest in business, and they were looking for a host. And they called me up and got me on the speakerphone and got the founder of Wondery and the Business Wars concept, Hernan Lopez, there in the room and a couple of other producers. And they sort of shot me a script cold, and they said, uh, try this. And so I did my best, and uh, as I was about, uh, I don't know, a few paragraphs in, they said, that's it. Can you, <laughs> can you start next week? Oh, wow. And I, so oh, it was man. one of those situations. It, it was, And, you know, I really do think of it as a blessing. I mean, I, yeah. I, I see this as... 
as a wonderful blessing for me and for my family, and and it it's um, uh, it's just been a, a and a terrific opportunity too. So and one that I don't take for granted at all, and we're just so pleased that it's been as successful as it has, but not without the hard work of so many people that are on the team. Yeah, it's definitely obvious that there's some very talented people associated with that podcast. So congratulations. I love it. And like I said, it it is a part of the curriculum now. And I've, and I don't know that I'll ever see any of my ideas, um, make it into their own series. Oh, you sent some good ones, man. You sent over some good ones. (laughs) Okay, cool. So anyhow, you and I grew up in Metro Atlanta. I'm not sure what year you were born. I was born in 1976 and I was there. I grew up, I was there till 94. And well, let me put it this way. I, I, in 76, I was uh, putting up a KISS poster for the Bicentennial on my wall down in Fayetteville. Are you so for that, real? That, that's, what, that, that's about <laughs> the time zone I'm talking about. My goodness. I thought you and I were very close in age. Okay. Well, <laughs> never mind. Okay. Well, I, I don't want to... No, see, I was only one year old and I was into KISS. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, uh, but, but seriously, uh, no, I'm... I'm I've, I've been doing this for a while now, Okay, so, all right. Yeah. And it's obvious, now that you say that, because of all the things that you've been a part of, but, well, first of all, I have to ask you, growing up in Atlanta, because you were in Fayetteville, south of town, I was up north of town in Marietta, Cobb County, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. did you grow up, were, are you a Braves and Falcons, Hawks fan? Are you sports-minded uh, at all? Do you enjoy following yeah, those I'm, teams? Yeah, my grandmother loved to follow the, the Braves, and so um, we would watch the Braves quite a lot, and when, I think that was my first experience, was going to a Braves game at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, which uh. is <laughs> n- no longer there. Yeah. Um, but uh, I can remember one one of my really earliest memories was was when um, and I must have been just a tot, but Atlanta had won an expansion franchise. Mm-hmm. I believe it was sixty six or sixty seven. Yeah, you're right, sixty six. And uh, and they had a they had a contest for naming the team. Yeah, and a lot of people put out names. I think a woman down in Griffin, Georgia, won the contest. Yeah. Falcon. There's a teacher. Falcons. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And and uh, but I remember, you know, wanting to call them something like the fireballs or something, you know, you're you know, you're just a couple of years old. What are you going to say? Right. But so I lost. Alas, the Atlanta fireballs never quite made it. But uh, <laughs> but I've been a Falcons fan since the very beginning and and uh, going way back when they got Tommy Nobis at Texas to be their their first star. So, yeah, I remember uh, I remember a lot of incredible I, I think I'm probably more of a football fan uh-huh. than than any other sport. That's probably the one that I gravitate to. But I never really played sports that well. Okay. Um, yeah, it, it was anything that didn't involve roller skates and a disco ball. I personally <laughs> couldn't uh, participate in uh-huh. very well. Understood. Uh, but um, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. So as as a fellow lifelong Falcons fan, we live and die by that team. We do a lot of dying, that's for sure. And, and on a world <laughs> yes. stage, I would like to point out. Yeah, so you grew true. up in Fayetteville. You have one sibling, a brother, older or younger? or where we He's at? a younger uh, brother, but I have to say that I learn a lot from him. I mean, hmm. he's uh, one of the smartest guys that I know. He has his own business in Atlanta. And actually lives in the town where we both went to school, which is uh, College Park. You probably know a little mm-hmm. bit about that. Mm-hmm. There's a, a nice, uh, nice uh, old school there in College Park, and and he's been 
not affiliated directly, but his son went there. And I think his son is now a, a scholar at uh, Georgia Tech. So they've oh, wow. very much stayed in, in Georgia. Okay. Um, but uh, I've been sort of hopping around uh, all over. And so, but we stay in touch. We're, we're going to go down and reconnect with them this summer down in Florida. Oh, good. And so, uh, yeah, yeah. But he's, uh, he's, a, he's a smart guy and um, we don't agree on everything. <laughs> but uh, that's what makes our relationship spicy. You talked about going all over, living all over, and really that that's that goes right to your college experience because I want to lay this out for people and and take me through as you can here. You went to Georgia State University where you mm-hmm. got a I guess a bachelor's degree. That's in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. What was your major there? It was journalism. It was, journalism. I was I, okay. I, it was an interesting thing and I, 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 to be honest, a lot of my friends went to some of the um, more highfalutin schools, I guess you could say at the time mm-hmm. and and Georgia State especially then, I think a whole lot less now, but especially then was considered a sort of an urban university, a night school for graduate uh, learners, that sort of thing. And and so uh, I had just not applied. I was very much into rock and roll at the time and figured <laughs> that I would be the next, uh, you know, uh, superstar. Seriously, but, that, that, um, that, that may be the only thing that you haven't accomplished in your life that you want to do, <laughs> no. and that's be a rock star, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, I, that's hardly the tr- the case. But but uh, there's a lot a lot that I'd like to do someday. But but I but a uh, rock star was definitely what I thought I would be doing, and <laughs> and it, my my parents were both educators, and it was important to them that I at least go to college right away. Now, I don't know if I would recommend college right away these days because I certainly wasn't mentally ready for college. Hmm. I was I, I got a great job at a commercial radio station in Atlanta and it was I really got educated in journalism for the most part there at work. But the but college gave me sort of a um, they gave me some, some rules of the road, I think. And I was attending at night uh, for the most part. Mm-hmm. So I would work during the day, almost always full time. And then I would go to school at night. I ended up over at WCNN, which was uh, a radio station that um, 680, right? was kind of a spinoff. Yeah, 680. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know what it is today. Is it still WCNN these days? Oh, or, uh, or no? uh, you know what? I think it is a sports talk station, but I'm going to look yeah, that okay. up. Yeah. Well, it's a, it used to be a just to be news talk, and and it was really a spinoff of of what was then called headline news, or, or I'm sorry, it was called CNN two back in the day, CNN two, uh-huh. and it was a more condensed version of CNN one, and I think nowadays it's called headline news, and it's got a lot of long form sort of talk shows and such, but back then it was thirty minutes, you know, a quick update of the news, and so it sort of worked on radio. But it was one of a, a few stations that I had the real privilege to to work at there in Atlanta. And it was a wonderful springboard for a career that, uh, goodness knows, I never really sought out, to right. be honest. WCNN, when you worked there, was it located in CNN Center? Because as you're telling this no. story, I'm having a flashback to one of the many ways I fell in love with radio and wanted to do this. Whenever we would go down to a Hawks game, we would go next door to the CNN Center, and there was mm-hmm. that radio station, WCNN, yeah. and you would just, right. I, I would just put my face up against the glass and watch the, for lack of a better term, the DJ, the news talk person, the board yeah, op right. on the other side of the glass, and just stare at the controls 
until it was time to go to the game. And I just had a flashback just remembering that as you were telling the story. But they weren't housed in that building at that time. No, huh? they weren't. No, they weren't. They, they had actually just changed call signs and CNN was so new. They were trying to figure out where they were mm -hmm. going. I think we shared um, an office building. We didn't share office space, but we shared a building with another AM station, which may or may not still be around, WPLO, hmm. which was uh, a, I believe it was what was known as an urban contemporary station, but it just played a lot of cool R&B and soul music, and it was and it was just a terrific station. And actually, it in in broadcasting history in Atlanta, WPLO is an important, as important as WQXI. And if you any of your <laughs> listeners are in Atlanta, you know WQXI right. if you right. grew up in Atlanta. Uh -huh. And you know, Quixie was a Quixie. Quixie was a was a force to be reckoned Gary with McKee. once upon a time. And absolutely, Gary <laughs> McKee. So, um, and I was I was lucky enough to work with some of those other cats. Skinny Bobby Harper was another one of those. Uh, actually, I think that a character on WKRP in Cincinnati was 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 sort of uh, crafted him. around. Yeah, Skinny Bobby Harper. <laughs> but um, that back then, when when Skinny Bobby was on the air, he was at WLTA, which was a sort of a doctor's office music station. You know, they played. They tried to be hip by playing. Um, uh, Barry Gibb, uh, or uh, maybe well, they once played a Kiss song, and I thought that was really going out there. You know, of course, me oh, being wow. a Kiss fan, they played like a like Beth or something. But for the most part, it was sort of Dennis office music. You know, it was sort of soft, easy listening music. But here's something that a lot of people I think forget about in the history of broadcasting, and that is up until about 1980 or actually it must have been 81, there was a requirement that all radio stations no matter your format, you had to have some kind of public affairs component, which generally translated into a top-of-the-hour newscast mm. on every station. So I entered at a time when that was still the law. So at WLTA, which was like a top three station in Atlanta, along with WSB and maybe one other, maybe maybe WRNG, Ring Radio, mm -hmm. um, WLTA was, uh, was an FM station that you would hear everywhere. Everywhere. The malls would be playing it. There's everything. <laughs> so at the top of the hour, they would play the Gone with the Wind theme, and then they would have a dun 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 kind of, you know, news sounder. And then you'd hear Skinny Bobby or whoever the DJ was on the air say, hey, it's 12 o'clock in downtown Atlanta, you know, that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. then they would read a script, and a lot of those I wrote. But after wow. a certain amount of time, uh, they let me get on the air. And I try to <clears throat> get my voice into Walter Cronkite <laughs> mode. And everyone knew I must be some teenager trying to sound, you know. <laughs> and uh, but but it was it was a it was a great gave me a great running start. And as a little weird kind of twist of fate, um, the sales department kind of got out ahead of the news department and they came up with this idea for a football roundup on Sundays. And so I, I volunteered to do it. And we would take a look at the Journal-Constitution Sunday morning, and they would have all the helmets, you know, back-to-back, uh, <laughs> -back and which, you know, what, what the face-offs were going to look like today. I page well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so I would kind of do a recap using a lot of the nuts and bolts that I'd pull out of the paper. And so I would do like a 10-minute sort of sports cast kind of thing, you know, uh, who's who's got the line and, you know, who's who's looking good, what to look out for in this game, what what the impact might be on the overall standings. 
And it was a blast. And Coca-Cola, which is an Atlanta tradition, an institution, they underwrote it. And so it kind of took off uh, and had some legs of its own. But I was always very proud of that because um, it was uh, it, it was something that, you know, just I don't know. It just kind of appealed to me because I was a football fan and it didn't require a whole lot of heavy lifting. And it was something that and by the way, this is kind of a secret, I think, in radio. When you have a personal passion about something you know, I know I do about broadcasting and certainly about business in mm-hmm. particular. When you have a passion about something, I think it just kind of comes through. Right. Um, and I, I love maybe more than just broadcasting, maybe more than business. I love telling stories. I love telling stories because I love listening to stories. And uh, it's a, you know, it's a joy to get my, tuck my kids in bed at night and, and, uh, uh, they'll always say, Dad, tell us a story, and I'll come up with something. <laughs> Usually it's about Elvis, but I'll come up with something. <laughs> that and, is um, good. So anyway, well, it's, it's, it's been fun. That is really cool. By the way, I did a, a quick little Google search. WPLO, still around, but it now goes by La Bonita. 610 a.m. Interesting. Just, just so you know. Yeah. Okay, so very interesting. Yeah. You you graduated from Georgia State and yep. you were the complete opposite of me because when I got my bachelor's degree at the University of Nebraska, I said, I'm done with school, never looking back. This is this is gonna take me to where I want to be, or I'm not gonna get there. But dude, not, not... I am absolutely <laughs> with you. Okay. I am absolutely wait, when I, that was the way I didn't even wait around for graduation. Send it to me in the mail. I mean, I don't want to you know, I don't want to okay. I don't want to see that diploma. I love this. I love this, folks. He is saying that. But we still have to talk about the masters that he got at St. John's in Annapolis. He went to law school. Uh, Washington and Lee in Virginia. By the way, he is a member of the California Bar, according to my research. Maybe he's got more to tell us about his lawyer days. And then he ended up getting his PhD at the University of Texas in Austin. Why so much schooling? David, you're going to have to enlighten us. (laughs) Well, uh, the short answer is I inadvertently stumbled into what I think is uh, a gem and it's it's St. John's in Annapolis. I happen to have been assigned uh, to be a Washington correspondent in the early 90s. And I was going through a lot of changes in my life, and I had some time on my hands. <laughs> and I was at a, a some kind of party, I recall, and people were talking about this guy that had, you know, sort of surrounded by people. He was a politician, I believe. And he had just completed his master's at St. John's. And so I started up a conversation with him and he said, dude, I know everyone says their alma mater is like the greatest thing in the world, but you've got to check this out. It will. <laughs> it is a life changing, life changing experience. Well, I did. And it turns out that he really wasn't exaggerating. St. John's has a great books program of Western civilization. So you're reading the classics. Wow. And even if you hate, even if you hate reading, okay. Um, the way that the program is set up, you are so drawn in to these books and the conversations that they stimulate, the freewheeling exchange of ideas. There, I can't think of too many. It's very much done in the old school Oxford tradition. Oh, I'm wow. not sure how many other colleges exist this way, but you have preceptorials and seminars, and it's not just lectures. You're reading and then you're, everyone is called Mr. or Ms., you know, at, in the classroom, oh, wow. including the students. The, you don't have a teacher. You have a tutor. And you're 
plowing through um, uh, you're plowing through uh, mathematics and science, Supreme Court cases. Uh, you're going back into the the Greek classics, uh, Homer, uh, Aristotle, it, it, and it is truly mind bending. And I had such a profound it had su- made such a profound difference in the way that I saw the world that when I was done. I was sitting in the, the, the sort of the, the rec center underneath the main building, and one of my tutors came by, and he had seen this sort of thing before. He could recognize it on my face. Mm. He said, Mr. Brown, I, it looks like you're wondering what next. And I said, yes, <laughs> actually I am. Wow. And he said, law school. <laughs> and I had not thought of it. I had not thought of it. And I didn't want to be a lawyer. Right. But that ended up being a springboard for going to law school. And that wasn't going to be it either. I knew it wasn't. And so I ended up uh, getting my Ph.D. at at University of Texas. And honestly, um, you know, I don't know. I I don't know what's next on on that front uh, frontier. And and taking care of kids is, (laughs) you know, three or four jobs unto itself. So it may be a while before I try to go back to class. But. What I love about it was how wrong I was hmm. about education because of, of my experiences. And, and, and to be honest, I think the way that they reinforced my attitude toward those experiences, they weren't, it wasn't fun, it wasn't challenging, and, and it wasn't engaging until uh, that St. John's experience. And so uh, all I can say with regard to St. John's, uh, and I'm some, something of an evangelist for it, is if you aren't familiar with that program, it's in Annapolis and it's also, they have a second campus in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Wow. Uh, you owe it to yourself to check it out. Uh, it's been making news, making headlines of late because of uh, how um, they, they've been cutting tuition pretty dramatically. Hmm. Um, uh, so in, in any event... Um, long story there but yeah, no, but no. that's what that's what got me going i mean it was it was that experience at st john's and how it opened up a whole world of questions and it made me think don't just go through school use it as as a tool to mm. to learn to answer those questions that keep coming up and you know i found out that the people that i really appreciate in academics are those people who never stopped asking asking questions, not the ones who have all the answers. It's, you know, and that's kind of the downer. It's like you feel like someone's just feeding you all this stuff and you've got to regurgitate it for the test. If you can get past that aspect of it, um, I think it's, if you, can, if you can find a way to make education an opportunity to answer those, those bigger questions, boy, it can be so much fun. It wow. really can. That master's that you earned there, classics and great books, it really does sound like a very unique degree to go and earn. I would just have a problem because I'm such a slow reader. I love reading. It just takes me forever. And there's no way I'd be able to digest this stuff and have these conversations. But I'm so glad you found this. Did you ever have the thought uh, over the course of your life since then, have you ever thought, where would I be today? What direction would my life have taken if I hadn't been at that uh, location and had that conversation uh, about yeah. about St. John's. Yeah, I think I think about that um, occasionally. I won't say that I think about it quite a lot because I know that 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 sliding doors aspect of life is a is a it's a it can be slippery, and I don't feel like I have 
you know, many regrets as I, as I think back on it. Um, certainly do. We all do. But, but I, I think that if I were not involved in something like that, I might have tried to get into television journalism hmm. at, at some point, maybe, you know, but it would have been what, what I really appreciate about the oddball direction that my career has taken is that it was oddball, that I've been exposed to a lot of things that I probably wouldn't have on my own tried to open the door to. Podcasting is a good example. Yeah. I, I thought podcasting was a flash in the pan when I first heard about it, I, I you know. Uh, and the fact that what I'm blown away by is the fact that we're calling it podcasting. A lot of listeners don't know why we call it podcasting. <laughs> they have no idea why uh, it's called podcasting. Tell us. You know, for, for example, well, iPod, right? Exactly. I mean, that's what it was. It was a revolution. <laughs> right. And it was it basically, uh, it was the form of the, the form factor of the iPod that, that Steve Jobs introduced that revolutionized the way that people thought about listening. There yeah. were MP3 players out there. They've been around for years, you know, but it was something about the elegance of the format mm -hmm. that made, you know, uh, that made listening to narratives and music for that matter, really, it's um, just more accessible and fun. Right. You know, that was really what it was. And don't you just love that, though, these words that are in our vernacular, such as Band-Aid, Kleenex, podcast, <laughs> that when you take a moment yeah. and you say, wait a minute, no, no, that, that's, I'm basically just promoting this brand, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of what it is. Right. Where were podcasts, though, when you and I were growing up making recordings in our basement in Metro Atlanta, oh, yeah. Georgia, right? I mean, we would have killed <laughs> for the opportunity that is just sitting out there for people to take advantage of. Anybody can broadcast across the planet, and you and I, growing up as wannabe broadcasters, were just begging for the chance to get behind a microphone somewhere. It's just yeah, amazing right, what podcasting right. has done to revolutionize communication. You're absolutely right. You are absolutely right. You don't need a transmitter anymore. Right. And, and it's, so it's really democratized the, the medium. And I think this is a golden age for audio, really, yeah. because so many people can bring their talents to to this setting and expose it to anyone any you know it's the 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 flip side of that of course is sort of what's happened with music as well the democratization the the fact that the that the barriers to entry right now are so low it makes some of the best ones um you know go without being noticed mm -hmm. but the ones but the the podcasts that really succeed are those with the with the power to sort the staying power they they um, that means a whole lot. Of course, you also have to have marketing muscle eventually, but you won't get there without the staying power. And it can be really depressing, I think, when you're getting, you know, some hits from your family and that's pretty much it, you know. Mm. But if you keep on keeping on and you keep polishing your skills, you keep sharpening the podcast itself, you're also con building up a library and you're building up your credibility within the podcasting spectrum because there are of the 900,000 podcasts that are out there, very few actually survive more than 10, 15, 20 episodes, mm -hmm. if that. So, um, you know, kudos to all of you podcasters out yeah. there who are sticking with it and, and making a go of it because it's, it's the grand adventure right now as far as I'm concerned. Pioneers. 
Pioneers right now. Amen. So I just want to touch on your law school adventure. Was there a particular kind of law that you went to school for when when you were at Washington and Lee? Probably, probably constitutional law, as most as most uh, attorneys will tell you. Um, Well, as most attorneys will tell you, you don't really specialize in law school. You might want to be a tax attorney or a patent lawyer or, you know, but but generally speaking, you go in and you you have your core and that's usually done after the first year, year and a half. And then you've got another year and a half or two to go. And then you can select electives. And if you want, you can get your LLD, which is kind of beyond the law degree. But uh, and you may need to have that for certain specialties. But con law was the thing that really lit a fire under my tail because I was reading a lot of those Supreme Court decisions back at St. John's. And it just it was like, wait a minute. How do you how do you get here? How did you know? And and uh, I wanted to understand the mechanics of that. And the other part of it is so much of politics is driven by those with a knowledge of the law and it can make the the maze of how policies happen well it, it, it makes it easier for you to deconstruct and as a journalist myself I thought that this would help me as a journalist and I will say this it's helped me as a journalist but it's also helped me just live my life it's helped me mm. make certain decisions it's helped me figure out what the best path might be path of least resistance to uh, get from A to C. It's so it's a it, it was a wonderful wonderful experience. And um, again, when I went looking for law schools because I knew that St. John's had made such a difference, I was looking for a place that was singular and unique. And WNL definitely is a place like that. There are other uh, stellar law schools, no doubt, but I needed to have an experience that would be centered on the student asking questions, not a student taking tests to get a diploma. Right. There was just, just why waste the money? Really, why waste the money? Yeah. And, I, and I wasn't trying to be a lawyer either. So, um, and I, you know, it's, it can be so much more than just a professional degree. And um, so I'm grateful that I got to go to WNL and, and I'm, I'm a big cheerleader for them too. So the learning didn't stop there. You ended up I'd like to know how you ended up at the University of Texas in Austin. Well, I was working at Marketplace in Los Angeles um, around the turn of the century. Okay. Doesn't that sound weird? The turn of the <laughs> I century. Know, right. Isn't that weird? So uh-huh. back in the 1890s. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, so turn of the century comes. I was working over at Marketplace. And... Um, I uh, and my wife uh, was who's also in this business was called down um, to Austin to start up a news department. And um, so we were sort of commuting, although, to be fair, most of most of it involved me coming out to Austin from L.A. on the weekends. And I kind of fell in love with the vibe of Texas because it meshed a lot of things that I really loved. I, there's mm. aspects of the South that I'm, I really love. I love the warmth of the people. I love the warmth of the sun. I, I, I really dig the kind of casualness and the laid backness, but also the authenticity, you know. And in LA, there are certain things that are just harder to find, like, for instance, a parking space. Or, uh, <laughs> no, I'm, just, I'm being a little facetious, but, <laughs> but, it, but the truth is, there was a point at which I realized after going back and forth between Austin and L.A., you know, I didn't have any kids. I'd traveled all over the place. Um, 
uh, I laid down roots. I think at that point I'd moved to 12 different locations mm-hmm. um, over the course of my career. And this is kind of par for the course for broadcasting. Correct. Many broadcasters right. end up going all over the place, as you know. So I began to sort of wonder, what's home? It, is home Georgia? Well, I haven't been there for a long time. I mean, I've, I've visited my folks and everything, but I hadn't lived there. Right. Is home California? Well, it's hard to to feel part of a place where you can't afford to buy a, a house. Mm. And then it hit me. Wait a minute. I don't have a family. Where would I want to raise my family, you know? And the more I thought about it, the more sense it made that that Texas would be where, of all the places that at least I had been, I would feel most comfortable putting down roots. And um, so ended up coming to Texas. And uh, one of the things that I did en route was apply to the journalism school. And so I was able to uh, start a program in 2005, and by the time I completed it, I probably set a record for the longest time in a doctoral program, because I just went like I went every semester. <laughs> I took one class, yeah, one class, one <laughs> class, and it was great. It was great to pace it out that way, but it was also one of the hardest mountains I've ever had to climb, wow. and um, it was a real challenge for uh, for me. Um, maybe not so much for people who are. Um, maybe more academically inclined than I am, but but uh, but it was a real challenge, and I'm so grateful uh, to my wife and kids for uh, their forbearance because otherwise I, I couldn't have couldn't have completed it. You're in love with Texas, as am I. Oh yeah. Could you ever see yourself living anywhere else besides here? The short answer is no, mm-hmm. uh, but the longer answer on on some degree of circumspection might be. Maybe Florida. Uh-huh. Uh, I kind of dig Florida, and and maybe because there's a certain sort of spirit of independence mm-hmm. uh, that it too has, and I dig that. Uh, I also love love the beach, and you know if I could find a way to to get down to a beach and and um, maybe not even retire, but mm. it's and part of this is kind of what you grow up with, right? I mean, I remember some of my fondest memories are going to the the beach you know Fort Walton area down uh, along the panhandle and the sand was so so driven and pure that when you'd walk in it it would squeak you know <laughs> it was that it was that pure and the water yes. tidy bowl blue green you know it was just like Oh, my stars, you know. Okay. And now these days, these days there are a lot of condos there and, and right. everyone's, everyone else has discovered it. You got Seaside and all these new or more contemporary developments. And <laughs> But back in the day, it was cinder block houses that would get blown over every 15 years by a hurricane. Yeah. And this beautiful stretch of unadulterated pure sand and the warmth of those Gulf waters. So, boy... You know, that's that's that would uh-huh. be a hard one to say no to if uh-huh. I ever had an opportunity like that. You know, See, and, but Texas, yeah. you know, when it comes to when it comes to feeling like home, I think my heart will always be here because it's there's uh, so much I love about the um, about the people of Texas, about the attitude of Texas, about the sense of reinvention that Texas instills in so many people. Um, the the passion for its stories and its mythology, uh, the fact that uh, 
uh, it's got such a, a rich history. Uh, it, there's just so much to adore about this place. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I dig Texas a lot. It sounds like you feel toward Florida the way I feel toward Charleston, South Carolina. And can I just give you kudos for the way you described your beach experience because we've all <laughs> experienced the squeaky sand beneath our feet and the the tidy bowl uh, blue, <laughs> blue water, yeah, <laughs> but I've just never heard it verbalized. So thank you for doing that. That's great. So <laughs> it's probably me- not, the, not the most elegant way to no, describe a beach, no, but, but it's with tidy bowl. <laughs> it's accurate. Okay, so Emily, when did you meet her? And is she a Texas gal originally, or somewhere no, else? No, no. She, she's, she grew up uh, up north. She grew up in Pennsylvania. Okay. And we met in Boston, but it turned out wow. that we were in London at the same time too. So she was working for NBC News in London, and I was um, working for Monitor Radio in London, which is a, at the time a public radio uh, a program. And so um, I, I didn't know she was there, but we were both, you know, correspondents in, in London. And, and so we happened hmm. to meet in Boston and shared a, a passion for music. And uh, and, and I, to be honest, she's I think she's the best producer, notwithstanding uh, those that I get to work with these days. But <laughs> at the time, most certainly the best producer I had ever worked with. And so uh, I was really impressed by um uh, her knowledge and 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 uh, her talent and uh, her smarts and uh, um, so we really I'm so glad that that she puts up with me and I'm so glad that that we've been able to be together for most of this time but you know as you know the work will take you away and, and cause long periods of separation so that's been a challenge over the years just being in this business you know but uh, but nowadays we're both settled in in Texas that's great. So you have two kids together. Well, I got a girl aged 11, and I've got a, a boy who is uh, uh, 14, uh, going on 26, and <laughs> he's uh, he's now taller than his daddy. Oh, and he's oh yeah. <laughs> my son is on my the mind. doorstep of overtaking me. I know the feeling. <laughs> blowing my mind, man. Blowing my mind. <laughs> I was one of those guys that never thought I wanted kids or that I would have kids. Huh. But um, but again, um, we were blessed, and the wonderful thing about it was that uh, there was a point I remember it very vividly in you know 2004 when I was thinking about these issues, these questions of home and what that meant. I realized that that kids added so much mm-hmm. to that sense of 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 place, and that because it gives it a kind of purpose, and right. and it gives you a grounding and. And for the first time, really, I remember I was at the beach with my parents and we were talking about life in general. And I said something that my parents never thought they'd hear me say. Um, I said, you know, I think I'd like kids if that's something Emily wanted. And and uh, my mom, I saw my mom's jaw drop to the floor. <laughs> you kids? What? You know, after all of my preaching about like the single life. And so we, I started I started this road to being a parent rather late, and I'm probably, I probably would have been much worse at it uh, mm. if I had started earlier, you know, because I just wasn't wasn't that mature, I don't think. Yeah. But um, but anyway, we, um, so when it when uh, uh, when my son came, um, it was a wonderful blessing, and and um, 
uh, and ditto for my daughter, and they are just uh, the light of, of, of our world. And, yeah. and uh, um, we're just so, it's just such a joy to watch them grow. I know that feeling, man. You're absolutely right. So I, I want to go to London here for a second, if I can, because you just alluded mm-hmm. to that. You and Emily were there, didn't realize that you were there at the same time. Right. Uh, but I guess something very interesting happened to you while you were there, correct? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, tell us about that. <clears throat> this is, well, this is a story I've told a couple of times, but um, I was doing a bit of research on Iranian arms procurement. I hope now that the NSC isn't homing in on your, on your podcast to determine what it is that I'm about to say, but in any event, the Iranian... The Iran, uh, the the Islamic Republic of Iran was maintaining a, um, there were sanctions everywhere against Iran acquiring nuclear weapons and and the like and or ballistic missiles. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that I was working on was how they were getting some of their technology. And because of sanctions, it was, uh, you know, they couldn't do this in the traditional markets that, say, many Western nations have. So um, how were they doing it? And I figured that I would go to the Iranian oil company to see if I could arrange an interview. And it was this was not the smartest thing for a reporter to do, but I was pretty much a cub reporter, and I didn't quite know uh, how to go about this better. But I actually just went over to the the oil company and walked up the steps, and they said, "Excuse me, sir, what what can we do for you?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, I'm a reporter, and I wanted to ask some questions about you know the oil company and what, Iran's oil business." And they said, "Well, you know, sorry, but we don't we don't answer questions here." And, and of course, of course, I mean, just somebody cold off the street, American accent in London, right? What, what the heck? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but. I don't know. I something about it. I just kind of thought this is the better way to do it than to try to set up an interview because I'm just going to get stonewalled in a, in a formal interview. I just want to have a conversation with someone. So I thought, figured if I get inside the building, I could maybe strike up a conversation and we could take it to lunch. Who knows? So yeah. I started to uh, going back into the building another way, and man, they did not like it. <laughs> so they grabbed me by both arms and pulled me out. Well, I did it a third time, and uh, they sent me tumbling down the front stairs. Wow. So I was um, pretty, you know, shaken up, I think is safe to say, and I needed some air. Mm-hmm. So I went walking around the corner. Now, the, the area, the general area I'm talking about was just south of Buckingham Palace and sort of in a little wedge between Buckingham Palace and where Whitehall is. Whitehall is where, like, um, say, the prime minister lives, and you have a lot of government departments. Uh, 10 Downing Street is in that general area. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've, got, uh, you've got the Houses of Parliament uh, just, just around the corner. So this is all kind of happening there. And, um, but this was also where my office, my, my office was for Monitor Radio. So rather than go back to the office, I figured I'm just going to walk out, get some air, think about this. What's my what's what's a better way to go about this story? So as I was walking <laughs> down the street, I passed in front of a store called Marks and Spencer, which is a bit they call it Marks and Sparks over there, and and uh, it was a bit like Sears Roebuck or something. I don't know with a, with a with a, a grocery store attached to it. Marks and Spencer. 
And I saw this man come out of the store. He's an older-looking guy. And uh, he had two bags, one in each hand, shopping bags. And I thought I recognized his face. <laughs> I couldn't quite place it. But I thought it was kind of curious that his face would strike me, especially just in among, you know, sea of people. Hmm. So I kept walking as if I hadn't noticed him. And I turned around and looked back to see if maybe I could get another side of him. And he did the same. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was thinking. I'm thinking, no, oh, this is weird. And what year was this? So I kind of, this would have been 19... 87, I guess. Oh, 87, 88. Wow. 87 or 88. Oh, so now you have to remember yeah. that Britain is involved in a lot of things. Uh, the, uh, the, the troubles, as they were called, in, in Ireland, that was still a big deal. You know, there were bombings in the tube stations uh, at this time. And I mean, there was a, it was a, there was a lot of tension. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and see, and I feel almost like I'm, for myself, not anybody else, because I'm not going to give away any of this. Uh, but I almost feel like I've cheated myself because I feel like Paul Harvey, like I already know the rest <laughs> of the story. <laughs> and so you saying the time frame that this is magnifies it even more so. Continue, please. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, so I wanted to know who this guy was, and I couldn't <laughs> shake this sneaky feeling that I was maybe being watched for that episode over at the Iranian oil company <laughs> and you know in England I'd read Spycatcher England has a you know a long and storied history of intelligence and counterintelligence services and domestic intelligence as well and so I didn't know whether I was being watched being watched by the British maybe the Iranians right. had a somebody I didn't know mm-hmm. but I wanted to find out and I didn't like the idea that someone might be tailing me either right and you had just had so this I figured experience it, with the Iranian oil company, right? Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. Your, your brain was already exactly. on high alert. Uh-huh. Something's going on. <laughs> so I waited until I got down to the end of the block, and I turned around again, and I noticed the man was still moving with purpose and deliberation, and he looked back over his shoulder at me again. Well, that was curious. So I was going to follow him. <laughs> We're going to turn the tables on this <laughs> So... We start going down these narrower and narrower streets, winding through the roads, you know, off of off of Victoria uh, High Street, I think it was called. And the roads are getting smaller and and and, you know, actually they're emptying out in a way. There aren't cars on the side of the road. And pretty soon I notice it's just me and him and we're just walking down these streets and he'll turn a corner. And then at. 20, 30 paces, I'll turn a corner, and I'll see him going, and then he'll turn a corner, and I'm turning a corner. And I'm thinking, some this is messed up, man. Mm-hmm. This is flat out, I'm on to something. <laughs> I'm on to something. So there's a long, we finally get, the, the road opens up to a longer street, and it looks like a, a bunch of fairly nice houses, you know, British houses, uh, uh, you know, what you might find in, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm thinking of Grosvenor Square comes to mind, but but there are these perfectly white painted houses and, and a long brick road. And the man walks all the way down the street, and there's no hiding me. 
because I'm just standing out there behind him at oh, some distance. Boy. And so then he stops David. and puts down both bags. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and then I hear above me, and I look up and there are sharpshooters. Oh, God. So my mind is racing. What the heck? Yeah, what are you doing? And then I realized uh-huh. who the man was. <laughs> now you know why and you suddenly, look familiar. And suddenly, without reaching into my pocket or anything, I said, Mr. Thatcher, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to scare you. Margaret <laughs> Thatcher's husband. Mr. Thatcher, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to scare you. I, 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 thought, I, I thought I recognized you around the corner at the Marks and Spencer. And I thought, since I'm a radio reporter, what a wonderful get it would be to, 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 to have you on our program. And I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to scare you or any, anything. So uh-huh. he starts to sort of smile. Uh-huh. And he does his hands like, get down, get down, you know, like to, as if a signal to the people perched above. Mm-hmm. And so I said, would you mind if I gave you my card? And he said, not at all. He said, but I have to explain to you, young man, <laughs> you know, uh, me and, and the missus have an arrangement. I do the shopping. She does the talking. <laughs> And I was like, okay, I, I, I understand it. And that's why I n- I've never heard you in an interview. I think he actually did do one or two BBC interviews. But I'd never heard him in an interview. And I thought, what an opportunity. Man, could you imagine getting a chance to talk with Dennis Thatcher, the, no the husband of, of the... Right. right so right. I'm approaching him with my card and, and I hand it to him. And he looks at it and he says, David Brown, hmm. Well, if I have a change of heart, I'll... I'll I'll let you know. I can reach you at this number. And I said, yes. And I knew I'd never hear from him again. Yeah. And I said, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to scare you, sir. Thank you so much for your forbearance. And and, and um, I hope you have a good day. So-, <laughs> so I turned around and started walking down the street. Uh-huh. And he said, oh, oh, Mr. Brown. <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. And I turned around and he said, I admire your go-go. <laughs> That's awesome. Wasn't that great? Wasn't uh-huh. that great? Just has a great little capper right there. I, I admire, admire your, your go-go. Go-go, yes. Uh, <laughs> so. so at what point did you realize it was him? Once the once you heard the sound of guns uh, yeah, getting yeah. knocked? Yeah, yeah. Once, once I heard that, that click, 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 it was like all fell in place all of yeah. a sudden. Oh, my God. This is Dennis Thatcher for crying out loud. There you go. Wow. That is uh, quite a story. That is that is really cool, man. Um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna start working in the word go go though. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm gonna be inspired now. Yeah, that's really fun. So right when we started this podcast, David, I said you've lived so much life. I don't know where to begin. We've covered a lot of it, but my goodness, I don't know if you still do this, but at least at some point in your life, you rebuilt motorcycles for fun. <laughs> well, yeah. But more for, more because I had to because if because I was crashing them so much if I didn't rebuild them I couldn't afford to fix them. <laughs> okay. I just but, that, yeah. I find that fascinating. That is so. Do you still get to ride and enjoy oh, yeah. the out? Okay, good. All right. And definitely, so that's something definitely. you still do then, as far as rebuilding, is that like a fun hobby or only not because, really? Okay. I don't do that. 
okay. don't really do that. And and there are a lot better builders. But I used to. And if any of your listeners are uh, are into motorbikes, uh, the Harley Davidson Sportster is this sort of. It's what the, if you were to uh, close your eyes and imagine a motorcycle. That that's the Harley Davidson Sportster. <laughs> and so it's it's so universal. Uh, and all the parts, the availability of parts is everywhere, that it's fun to just kind of swap out parts and customize them and make them your own. And hmm. I'm re- I really enjoy those. Um, but these days, I'm, I, I don't really have a whole lot of time to, to spend in the garage. So uh, when I do have time to, to play with bikes, it's for, you know, trying to go as, on as long a ride as possible. I understand because, I mean, you alluded to it, raising kids is <laughs> yeah. two or three full-time jobs as it is, and you're absolutely correct there. So yeah, let's just recap here. You're a Southern guy with a PhD who loves motorcycles and Alex de Tocqueville. Tell us why and how you fell in love with Alex de Tocqueville. Ah, uh, Democrati en Amérique uh, <laughs> is the short answer. Uh, Tocqueville was was a reading from St. John's, and it uh-huh. rocked my world. Um, and it was most people it's been you know he's a french person who came to the united states looking um to examine prisons in the united states to examine our criminal justice system in a sense really but what he ended up doing when he came back he ended up writing a treatise in a way maybe never or at least until now not exceeded by any other writing in its in its own way in capturing a certain essence of america mm-hmm. and it's not a complete picture and it's certainly not an unbiased picture, but what it what it is is a snapshot that really is rare and unique into what what civil, political, social life was in America. So you get a glimpse into sort of the underpinnings of the of of this country as the founding fathers might have might have seen it, and for you know for better and for worse, and. Um, it's interesting, I think, that he didn't, you know, it's often translated, his book is translated as Democracy in America. But he said something rather unique there when he said Democracy en Amérique, not Democracy en Amérique. He was actually making a statement about the nature of a particularly unique kind of democracy, American democracy. And he was hinting at the idea that was so important at that time in history that the American experiment was just that. It wasn't a full-formed country and that a lot of things were going to change and this would always be, um, uh, this would be a more dynamic country than many in Europe had been, um, you know, since uh, uh, the establishment of monarchies and, uh, you know, France was going through revolutions and that sort of thing. But, right. but, but this was a kind of a, he provided a real rare look at ourselves, I think, in a way that still in so many respects stands the test of time. And I have such admiration for his keen eye and the way that he picked up on things that uh, Americans themselves wouldn't pick up on until the Civil War or uh, other major events in, sure, in he, our history. Yeah, he predicted the two, for lack of a better term, superpowers would be the United States and Russia. I mean, he... It's just amazing. Yeah, it's... Uh, I'm with you. Fascinating. Fascinating. So you're, you're a fan, too. You're a fan of Tocqueville. I am. I am. I think that that is... Uh, that's in fact that I'm writing this down right now. I actually need to have my kids read. <laughs> see, look at you. See, you make me 
assign my kids more things to do. <laughs> Don't never, do it. Yeah, I never thought of that. Not only do you have to listen to these podcasts, Business Wars, no. but now you're reading Democracy in America. So you've alluded to music a lot during the course of our mm -hmm. conversation. In fact, that's one of the things you do, right? You host you host a show. Tell us about it. Well, well, I, I used to host a, a music show called Texas Music Matters, and it was one of the one of the more fun things that um, that I uh, uh, did uh, at KUT. These days, I host a a, a daily uh, hour long news show called Texas Standard. But back in the day, um, I guess once I got here, I, I began sort of a uh, a ten year journey, sort of going deep into Texas music and. And it, what a joy ride that was. I probably, when it comes to the, the stuff that I, I've done for terrestrial radio, that content is probably what I'm proudest of. Um, we ended up creating a little department at uh, the NPR station in Austin that was made up of as many as 12 people at, at one period. And all we were doing, we were interviewing artists, we were exploring their their music, we were exploring their stories, we were um, talking about influential artists from Rocky Erickson to ZZ Top to uh, uh, Erica Badu to, I mean, you name it. It was all over the map. And of course, you can't miss, uh, you know, Willie and and uh, and the the people who make up sort of the holy trinity of of Texas music and 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 so the reason I love Texas music so much is because of something my daddy did back when I was a little boy I was visiting my my grandmother and I found a record an old 78 it was the first 78 I'd ever seen and my dad said that when he was a boy growing up in Fayetteville you know a little country town didn't have <laughs> enough money for shoes mm. um they would listen, they would tune in late at night, they would unscrew, literally unscrew the light bulb and use that socket to plug in the radio set because they only had one like socket. Wow. So they would unscrew the light bulb, plug in the radio set, and that radio glow would be the only light lighting up that one-room house. And so they would tune in the border blasters coming across from Del Rio, and they would hear, you know, Carter family and, and all these country artists. And one of the artists that made a huge impact on him was Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. And this record was something he got for a birthday present one year. It was Bob Wills doing San Antonio Rose. Huh. And so he put that on for me, and it was like, ba-boom. Uh, a fire just lit up under me, and... and I've been in love with with Texas swing, Western swing ever since. And uh, uh, thank goodness for Ray Benson, by the way. If any of y'all are, are Texas music fans, Ray Benson is the head of Asleep at the Wheel. He founded Asleep at the Wheel in the 70s. And he's keeping the spirit of Texas swing alive. And he's doing a real service for not just Texas music, but for all of American music. And by gum, if you ever get a headache, put on some Bob Wills and it'll it'll disappear in 10 minutes quick. Oh. It's a it's a it's a happy music and it's a it's a fun mix of jazz and uh, country and and sometimes gospel and it's just a wonderful mishmash of 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 uh, some of the best traditions in American music. Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. My book, Bob Wills, is still the king. So <laughs> it was wonderful to do Texas Music Matters because 
it gave me an opportunity to explore all these questions I had about these um, path-breaking artists that that really uh, shaped the sounds of Texas and ultimately uh, uh, the United States. Okay. Well, I wrote that down, by the way. Bob Wills. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I get headaches quite a bit, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that <laughs> to the test. So, Well, you'll understand once you listen, but <laughs> aha, I'll say aha. Now, you'll understand once you listen to Bob Wills, and Bob Wills fans, if there are any out there, you get it. That's but, good. But that was a big part of the Bob Wills sound. All aha. right. So it sounds like, actually, I've probably heard some Bob Wills and just never knew that because I I'm very familiar have. with that sound. So <laughs> yeah. when I send this email out with these questions, I ask, what's the last song you played on repeat? I don't usually get an answer, but I did from you, and I appreciate it. And you, uh, you, you sent me the note, uh, Rio by Duran Duran. So yeah. are you a big <laughs> 80s guy? I mean, is, is no. that? No. It's just, that's no. Just, that's just how, the, how it tied uh, down, huh? Well, no, what it was was uh, I, I'm actually more of a, uh, I don't know what, how, I have a really eclectic musical taste, and I, I, I love heavy metal, and I, 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 I truly dig disco for what it is. I, I love uh, punk. I love. Uh, I really pretty much am, am, am open to just about anything and, and, and appreciate it, if not adore it. But the reason Rio was because I'm, a, uh, I'm, I'm primarily a bass player. I wish I was a better guitar player, but I'm really... Uh, 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 I guess a bass player uh-huh. and so John Taylor of the band Duran Duran started up uh, uh, one of these YouTube uh, you don't want to call them podcasts but a YouTube channel uh-huh. and he was showing how to play Rio and I thought dang man I bet I can pull that off after uh-huh. all these years so I, I pulled out uh, the old four string <laughs> and uh, yeah gave myself a challenge Look and so you. as it happened that was just that it was that day I had been okay. listening to Rio okay. repeatedly to kind of get the get the breakdown. So you play bass guitar. You're closer to being that rock star. See, look, you've almost accomplished everything <laughs> yeah. possible. I didn't come close. Okay. I didn't come close to being a rock star. I but I enjoy, I enjoy playing. Sure. It's, a, it's a good hobby. Sure. And in your family, you also have some pets, a couple of cats and a dog. Tell yep. us about them. One of the cat's name is Cat. <laughs> and the other cat's name is Cat. No, I'm, I'm being a little silly <laughs> right. because, uh, you know, it's, it's a thing for the kids mostly. But <laughs> Good for to, you. Got... I love that. Perfect. You slip those in the rest of the way here, okay? <laughs> That's good stuff, man. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's funny because they, whenever they bring home, an, uh, uh, whenever their mom, let's just put blame where it's due, <laughs> whenever the mom brings up a dog or a cat or something, it's always sneaking it in like dad wouldn't this be wonderful it's like what am i going to say no take him back no i'm not they know that i'm not going to say that so yeah so now we've got more stuff to do at home so there we are Mm -hmm. abracadabra (laughs) so yeah i've got we've got two cats and they're both they're both really sweet and so is the dog i mean as much as i as as much as i like to play the curmudgeon i love them all and they're part of the family yeah is it it's tiger lily and buddy are the cats right uh, if you say so. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, that's Tiger Lily and Buddy. Oh, am I going to am I going to mess up the message to the kids by doing that? <laughs> not at all, not at all. It's all good. Gucci is like this uh poodle mixed breed and real smart, real smart pup Such and a great uh, sort of our guard dog if you can imagine a poodle mix as a uh-huh. guard dog, you no. know, an alarm system at least. I love that name, Gucci. So great. <laughs> yeah. Earliest memory 
playing with a Batmobile. Now, I've explored the theory that our earliest memory seems to always be traumatic, but hopefully this actually sounds like it might be a good memory, right? No. Oh, see? I've I've wondered. No, 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 no. Not a bad memory (laughs) at all. It, oh, oh, it's, oh, so uh, it is okay. So it is a good memory. Okay, good. Wow, that's fascinating. Okay, it is tell definitely, me. Definitely, definitely a good memory. Definitely a good memory. And it and it simply is the freedom of being in a device and guiding it. You know, it's 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 that and I don't know, by the way, I don't get this, and maybe you have some insight on this, but you know, I understand that a lot of um a lot of younger folks don't like to uh, drive. It's not like something that they're like waiting with bated breath when they're David, 15 to get their learners. And David, you know, my I'm oldest child is 17 years old. She's she's almost 17 and a half. She has not gotten her license yet. She has no interest in getting her license. She's just not into it, and it's not like we so live in an urban center. Get, we live way out in the sticks, man. And and, How, and so, what is that about? I don't know if it's a girl thing. I don't know if it's my daughter is just unique in that respect because my son, who's fourteen, he's ready. He has been ready. Hmm. Show me hmm. the car that I'm driving. Let's go. <laughs> but my oldest daughter is just, and I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a generational thing, but her friends are driving. I don't know what it is, but no, that you're onto something there. I don't know. When yeah, I was well, a kid, I, think, uh, I wanted to drive by the time. But me I, too. I, I think I got a job at a golf course, David, just so that I could drive the golf carts. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Anyhow. Yeah, that's how I that's how I started cutting my, my parents' grass. Uh-huh. I got to ride around the riding lawnmower, right? I got to drive the darn thing. It was cooler than a Batmobile in a way. <laughs> uh, didn't have black fins, but, you know, hey, made a lot of noise. So talk about your parents, because you say they've had the biggest impact on your life, correct? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm absolutely. Uh, they were both educators, lifelong educators. Um, my dad grew up, um, he didn't know how poor he was, but, uh, you know, it was, it was uh, not a wealthy upbringing. Um, and my mom grew up in uh, slightly better circumstances because her dad was employed and, and uh, had, a, had a government job in Macon, Georgia. And uh, I think it was hammered into them, this expectation that you can grow up to be uh, more successful than your parents. And it wasn't so much a comparison um, or anything like that, but there was a certain idea that about parenting maybe at the time, and, and I guess it's still still with us, but this idea that, you know, we're creating opportunities for you, and, and now what are you going to do with it once you're out of high school? And and I my parents really grabbed that, you know. My dad, uh, even though he had trouble, um, I don't think that he would mind me mentioning this, he had trouble spelling words, he got, ended up getting his doctorate eventually and so did my mom and they were uh, they were both uh, public school administrators and uh, and did so all their lives uh, my dad was also uh, he was a he was a math whiz and maybe what you know what was for me I, I you know words came easier for me for him numbers came came easier and and uh, so he was one of the first in um, in our area to 
lock into the promise of personal computing. And I can remember him, you know, rigging up TRS-80 um, Radio Shack computers, you know, uh, and trying to come up with ways to to do all kinds of crazy processing and and uh, <laughs> uh, for work and for his uh, his own school, his own education, and um, and both of them were very much into church. Uh, it was really important, and I think that that uh, love, um, if I can be candid, I think that that um, love of um, uh, something greater. Um, religion, to be blunt, Mm. it was probably the greatest gift that they could have given me. And they never gave up as as much of a, you know what, that I could be. Um, And Mm. certainly as a teenager, they never gave up and were always, um, and, and in a gentle way, they were never trying to force feed me religion or church. They did so in a way that demonstrated the power of love, mm. and um, and it's uh, it and and honestly, I think the love of education ultimately um, goes back to them because they saw it as an opportunity, not as a burden. Mm. And um, it took me a long way to get there. But I think that um, what they had understood when they were younger, when really any opportunity was a golden opportunity, uh, I think that I, because of all the things that they gave me and did for me, I didn't understand that education could be that, that, that any opportunity was a golden opportunity. I love that. And, 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 maybe, and maybe, you know, I know these days it's kind of more popular to say, you know, you don't have to swing at every ball. But when you got nothing, you know, when you got nothing, dadgummit, you better swing. You know, you yeah. better swing. That's... And I'll tell you, I'll tell you one other thing, and I'm sorry I've been so long-winded. But no, I love I it. Wouldn't be doing, I wouldn't be doing radio, man. I would not be doing radio were it not for something my dad did to me on Georgia 1941. I think that was a road that was immortalized in an Allman Brothers song. <laughs> but we were, uh, I was playing in a rock band. And I didn't want to do anything but play in a rock band. And this was as my, you know, as my uh, senior year had wound down at high school. And, um, you know, you, you talk about where would you be? Lord knows. I mean, seriously, Lord knows. But, but I was playing in a rock band, and he had insisted that I couldn't stay at the house unless I was searching for a job. Because I was going to go to school, but I needed to get a job, and I needed to, you know. And I told my dad, "Hey, look, I'm I'm playing the band. We're making money. We, we yeah, sorta, but <laughs> but not, you know. Right. And so finally, he said, he said, you're going to have to, you know, put out the resumes, get yourself a job. Well, my secret was this: I would put out resumes to places that had no, I had no hope of getting a job, oh. no hope of getting a job. So we're driving down. Highway 1941. And my dad says in his Volkswagen, red Volkswagen, Beetle. And my dad says, how's the job search coming, son? And I said, um, well, you know, I put in a bunch of resumes, but nothing's really going anywhere. Well, actually, did get one nibble. And he said, what was that? And I said, well, I, I uh, heard back from a radio station in uh, McDonough. And, uh, you know, but it's they're looking for a DJ, but, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to get a job as a DJ at a radio station. 
and my dad slammed on the brakes and went to the side of the road. He said, get out. Oh. I said, sir? He said, get out. Get out of the car. Oh, boy. And I, w- I was like, what? So I got out of the car, and he got out of his side, and he came along to my side. Now, my dad, man, when he was a teenager, he was a fighter because it was just sport for him. But he was mad, and I could see the flashes in his eyes. And he grabs me by the shirt, and he pins me up against the, the side of the car. And he says, son, you're going to go to that radio station, and you're going to get that job. Mm. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, I will. So wow. I get back in his car. Not a word was said all the way home. The next day, I go back up to McDonough. I got that job because my dad said so. And I was basically spinning records and having, you know, gospel preachers come in and, and, and read the good word over the air live. And, and I was ripping and reading <laughs> news copy. And then a tornado warning came in. And I still get chills when I think about it. And I had to read the bulletin, you know, from Hartsfield International Airport, the National Weather Service reports a tornado in Henry County heading north northeast at a speed of 25 miles per hour all residents are warned so I'm I interrupt Linda Ronstadt and I go reading this on the air and I could see cars below us I was we were in the only multi-story building in McDonough Georgia a little three-story building I could see cars pulling off to the side of the road and people getting out and getting into ditches and it filled me up with this idea of the power of radio and the power of information and how it can be a public service. And the next week, I put out all of my resumes to as many radio stations in Atlanta. And this time I'm in it. I wanted a job at a radio station, a real big radio station. And I got one. And it wasn't because I really earned it or deserved it, but I really wanted it. And I can say this. Sometimes I don't know which direction my life's going to take, but I do know that being open to opportunity and being open to the possibilities that are out there, just, just being open to it in your heart, will open up paths that you just never really dreamed of, and, and, it, and it enriches your, lives, in, your life in ways that you couldn't possibly plot out on your own. Um, I'm so incredibly blessed to have had the opportunities that uh, that I've had, and I'm so grateful that my parents never gave up. Mm. Your dad, what an inspiration just from that story, that he was not going to let you just not try. Right. As the quote right. from Wayne Gretzky says, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, and... And 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 right. he he instilled in you that lesson perfectly, and you're sharing it today. That's great. Well, you, thank you for the opportunity to to share it because it, it it means it means a lot to me. Absolutely. So, um, I ask this question: What is your most embarrassing moment? <laughs> and so, I, I want a clarification on this because your response is not being prepared for an interview. Are you saying that that definitely happened to you? That was your embarrassing moment? Oh, boy. Oh, yeah, no. And sure who was. was this? 
Oh no! I know his name. I know his name. No, nobody else will know it. It's okay. uh, his name was Hino Kopietz, and so so nobody's nobody's going to know it. But okay. I'm sure he's out on the internet somewhere. Hino Kopietz, but he was a um, he was an expert in um, in arms uh, per, uh, arms procurement and nuclear weapons and in, in um, uh, ballistic missiles. And um, along about the time I told you about checking out the Iranian oil company. You know, that was pretty half-cocked of me to go to that Iranian oil company and try to get in. Well, it was pretty half-cocked of me to go to Heino Kopietz's office to seek expert uh, comment uh, talking about um, uh, small and intermediate um, range missiles. And I'd really not done my homework. Oh, no. But I was so much in the groove of like, you know, you grab a soundbite, you know, you can sort of skate around, you sort of, and, and, and kind of approach it like, well, teach me something, teach me the report or something, and I'll write it into my story, you know, that kind of thing. What a, re- it's just a weak way to, to go about <laughs> reporting. But by the way, a lot of people do it. A lot of people do it. You know, you just kind of, you, you kind of got the subject, you think you can wing it, you go in there, you get your soundbite, you put the story together as you think it is, well, and honestly, uh-huh. ugh. Was, so I went in there and did it, and he called me on it. He oh, called me on no, it, man. man. He was he was with a he was with an organization called Chatham House, which was like a think tank in London. <laughs> and he called me on it. He said, "Mr. Brown," and he threw out something about an SS nine or something. And I said, I, 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 "You know," he said, "You don't know, do you?" Oh no, no, I don't. You know, and it was one of those. It was super embarrassing. And he said, "Huh, I would have." expected more from someone from your organization oh no! that's a real shame you know just it was just like i was getting i could feel myself getting smaller and smaller and smaller and so and so i left just feeling pummeled and went home and just began studying just studied 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 and about three weeks later i called him back and i said dr copiates this is david he goes oh i remember you well (laughs) would you be willing to talk to me and he goes are you prepared and i said sure so I went into his room, and man, I was ready to rock and roll. And I actually had some good questions this time. I had some, I had some, right. some interesting questions. So I asked him the questions, and he gave me some terrific audio, some tape, you know, and we had a great exchange. And at the end, he said, you know, I've done that to almost every journalist that comes in here <laughs> trying to get a quote from me. You're the first one to come back. Oh, look and at I that. And I thought, dag, dude, dag, that's man. all right. You got some cred so, now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with Heinokopiates. So um, I don't know what ever happened to, to him, but I remember his name, and, and I remember it was a wonderful lesson that I think probably every reporter, you know, probably deserves to go through if, if, yeah. if you're inclined to kind of cut corners. It doesn't pay to cut corners, and and it and it mm. uh, and your and and I, honestly, your audience is is not well served. So, right. um, it was a good good lesson. I'm going to tell you about an embarrassing moment I had not being fully Please. prepared for an interview once, and um, it actually happened just a few minutes ago when I thought you still did the Texas music show. And you <laughs> oh, that's cool. See, so Dude, that's cool. <laughs> I, I I thought that was still a thing going on, but okay, I'm sorry. See, see, look, there's no, my embarrassing right. not being prepared for an interview moment. No. Um, well, then then you have led a you have led a charmed <laughs> life if that's the worst embarrassment. Because oh no, that's no, a, I just no, I just said that was my my uh, not being prepared for an interview moment. I didn't oh, say I that's worst embarrassment. No, yeah, no, no. So, uh, is there a proud moment? Is there an interview that you did that really sticks out in your mind where you thought? 
man, that was such a fun time, such a, a, a great interview that I had with so-and-so. Does, does anything like that stick out, kind of the, the, flip of, uh, the flip side of your experience with the arms guy? I've I've had I've I've had so many opportunities to speak with so many people that I don't know I mean um, you know uh, some people are people that I you know that are like legends in journalism like Dan mm -hmm. Rather and that kind of thing oh, wow. um, uh, you know some people you know I've had the opportunity to talk to presidents I've I've had opportunities to talk to uh, a lot of a lot of interesting people over the years. Um, so I don't know that I really have like a like an interview that sort of stands out as as like, you know, proudest or shining moment or anything like that. I always think I suppose I, I, I still think like I did when I was in my 20s that there's always a better one that's coming. You know, there's always going to be someone more interesting out there. And there always is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just it's uh, there's always been somebody with a with a more interesting story to tell, you know, and so. Um, I, I don't know that I could single anyone out. I don't think it would probably be fair of me to, to sure. even try, to okay. be honest with you. Sure thing. Sure thing. So here is my last question for you. And when I ask in the email, what is something you want to accomplish in your lifetime? Your response was watching my kids become all they can be. I thought that was such a great answer. And as a dad, that probably that's probably my favorite answer to to this question are they showing any signs at age 14 and 11 of what they might want to do with a career choice? Are there hmm. certain things about them that uh, maybe you want to make predictions or something that, you know, that you guys can have fun and revisit later or something like that? Uh, yeah, yeah, I like that idea. Yeah, I like so, that so idea. So where do you see question. them, you know, not, not, not determining their career path for them, but where sure. are you getting a hint of where they might be leaning at this age? Okay, okay, kids, if you're listening to this in the future, here's here's what your old man was thinking. I, I think I think my my son has a philosophic bent and he has a um he has a certain lawyerly perspective that makes it possible for him to see many different sides of a situation in ways that I certainly couldn't at his age. And he's always been that way. He, I, I've been able to have wonderful conversations with him for nearly as long as I can remember just because he was so observant and analytic in the way that um, that he approaches uh, life. So I wouldn't, I can see him uh, as a lawyer, I could see him in the academy, or I could see him being, uh, you know, an Elon Musk type, you know, because I think that's something that, that he aspires to and he has um, I believe, as a as a proud father, I believe that he he can pretty much do whatever he decides he's going to he's going to stick with and 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 do. Um, my daughter is uh, a wonderful um, peacock slash unicorn, and uh, <laughs> she is a true performer. And you know, it's it's interesting because I've seen her as she grows. I've seen her, you know there's a point where you become more self-aware and, and there's that danger of being, becoming self-conscious and what are other people thinking of me. And it's been wonderful to watch her push through and be really committed to that creative spirit. That, and, and she's a performer, man. She, she'll, she'll take over a stage and win over a crowd, you know. <laughs> so it's been wonderful to see 
where she goes with that. Um, it will be wonderful to see where, or if in fact she goes with that. She's also just a she's also a, a really smart thinker, and um, so. Uh, but those are those would be my two. You know that that would probably be what I would say on this particular day, a summer day in 2020. But don't hold me to it. Okay. Well, I I promise you I won't. And just <laughs> just don't let your kids listen to this podcast un, until way down the road, <laughs> yeah, we'll so they can see. Put how. it in a lockbox. Yeah. Yeah. This is great, <laughs> David Brown. Thank you for spending this time with us today and having this conversation. You're just awesome to listen to on the Business Wars podcast. He also hosts Texas Standard. Um, Man, I I cannot recommend enough Business Wars, folks. Please check out that podcast if you want to learn history in such an easily digestible and entertaining way. Keith, you've been awfully generous to, to have me. Thank you so much. David Brown, Business Wars. Thanks for making time for At The Mic. This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Look for At The Mike Show on Twitter to connect. 